Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Hello, and welcome to A Musical Journey Like No Other, giving you an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins concept album, Autumn. This is 33. This is Episode 6, Chapter 6, the sixth step on this interstellar musical expedition. If this is your first time listening to 33 with William Patrick Corgan, welcome to the show. If you've been with us since the very beginning, thanks for being fans and thanks for tuning in. On this episode, like every episode of 33, we're going to have a world premiere of a song from the album Autumn. This time, the song is titled Hooligan. As always, we're going to break down the song with Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan. We're going deep into the story, the lyrics, the melody, the connections to past albums, and the connections to the world we share. We'll also be giving you exclusive insights into previous hits, B-sides, and fan-favorite tracks from the Billy Corgan catalog. On this episode, we're listening to and analyzing Disarm, third single from the 1993 album Siamese Dream. Our guest on today's episode of 33 is one of the biggest names in rock and roll production and the drummer for the band Garbage, Butch Vig. Butch produced the Smashing Pumpkins albums Gish and Siamese Dream. Big supergroup Five Billion in Diamonds has a new single out right now. It's called A Thin Line, and it features Smashing Pumpkins drummer Jimmy Chamberlain. That song is part of a double vinyl release for the album Divine Accidents, which is also out right now. I'm Joe Galley, one of your hosts for 33, and joining us on this journey is my friend and broadcast partner who is back with power and internet once again, Kyle Davis. It's nice to have the things that I needed the most. I had shelter, I had friendship, but now I could be here with you guys. So big thanks to everyone that's also found us. Your support means the world and a friendly reminder that we want to hear from you. So reach out to social media using the hashtag WPC33 spelled out so we continue to evolve the conversation as we build the autumn's ultimate release. Also, make sure you're going over to WPC33 to continue the conversation. Related playlists, lyrics of today's songs, more on the influences that make Billy Corrigan music you love. Like, subscribe, share, rate, review, tell your friends. Make sure you're there and help us grow. Now, WPC, you are currently traveling the roads with the Spirits on Fire Tour with Jane's Addiction. Shows coming up in Washington, D.C., MSG, Philly, Pittsburgh, Montreal, Toronto. The list goes on. You're on the road performing almost every night. You're helping us build an NWA wrestling brand. You're telling us great stories of the people you're meeting on the road, even if it's an old one, that Christopher Walken won in the gym. Big pop. You're a busy man, so thank you for finding the time in your chaos. 
Happy to be here. What do you got going on, boss? <laughs> well, you know, it's crazy. We're on the biggest tour we've had probably since 1997. So it's a wild journey and uh, particularly seeing a lot of young people in the crowd every night, which is growing um, exponentially, is just such a thrill. And it's probably one of the best times we've ever had in the band. So we're very grateful. And if you're here listening, I can only thank you from the bottom of my broken heart because it means a lot. You know, it's a, it's a world of complication, a lot of information. And as we know, Kyle went, just went through a hurricane. You know, life happens. And uh, to celebrate with Butch here today, you know, our long relationship going all the way back to uh, 1990, when we first met on the street in Madison, Wisconsin, to record a song, uh, which became Tristessa. It's just a, it's a cool thing. It's cool to be around long enough to celebrate. And uh, so I'm, I'm celebrating. Yeah, there's no better way to celebrate than by actually seeing you in concert. I saw you when you came into the Moody Center in Austin. Absolutely rocks. And not only with the Smashing Pumpkins, but also Jane's Addiction just kicks it. And then Poppy is such a fun um, music group to see as well. So it's a lot of fun. But we got to talk about this track. We got to continue on with this interstellar musical journey, Hooligan. I listened to it a few times, and I'm still debating in my mind which character this song is actually coming from. So let's break this down. Yeah, well, this song is sung by Osira, the young person who's received the message from space, gotten the song with the Do I Do, didn't really feel much at all, went to the dark web, and now she's sort of having an emotional response, right? She's kind of in this weird mystery. She's interested in an artist who's been vanquished off Earth. She's heard one of his songs, doesn't really care, and yet sort of feels compelled to do something about it. Let's June know, not knowing who she's replying to in space, let's June know that people do care about Shiny. But where she's sort of surprised is she has an emotional reaction to the idea that now she's become important in this story. The story kind of hinges upon whether or not Osira does anything about it. And she finds maybe for the first time in her life that she has a value outside of herself. Like many young people, she defines her life based on her friends and you know social standing. And yet something bigger than her own life has come onto her, I guess, computer. And she has to make a decision. And suddenly it engenders this response in her where she feels like a little bit of a criminal, or in this case, a hooligan. She's outside of her comfort zone, but she sort of likes it. It brings out the rebel in her is what I'm trying to say. I thought it was going to be essentially the hackers. This was like their anthem. So I'm going to just take that as a win and say I tangentially was correct in a way, shape, or form. I, the judge so, is going to rule that as Kyle. a win for you, Kyle. You have won the the, the weekly contest of, of guessing what these songs are about. Yeah, what's interesting to me is in writing a song like Hooligan, I went back into that sort of my own spirit when I was young about feeling I was doing something dangerous, but I didn't quite know what it was that I was doing that was dangerous. And having a lot of people around me tell me that I was sort of overinflating my place in the story. You see sometimes young people get very invested in causes bigger than themselves, like hashtag justice. People start hashtagging, which is important. I mean, social awareness is hugely important in the world that we live in. But it's not the same as taking action. So maybe for the first time in Osiris' life, she's faced with a problem where she has to make a set of choices about whether she's going to get more emotionally involved in something that is way bigger than her, is pulling at her heart a little bit. But on intellectual level, she's not really caring about shiny the artist, so why should she care? That's a moral judgment that many of us face. You know, we get the the letter in the mail, hey, you know, save the puppies or something, right? And you kind of you got to go through that little moment and you're like, do I care? Much of modern life is no, you shouldn't care unless it involves you directly. There's something about the rebelliousness of the moment, the fact that it's landed on Osiris' desk, that she's gone outside herself and gotten involved in something, and now 
the decisions that she make might affect the life of somebody who's floating off towards the sun. I think it's so interesting that there is a danger level in just having the knowledge and just knowing that there's coming across something that was forbidden and then kind of being more interested to it. There appears to be a, a level of danger just in having that. And then it could also in the, what you're describing seems like it also leads to a level of excitement from her as well. Well, there's something exciting about pushing back against authority. That's a classic theme of youth, you know, hope I die before I get old, all that stuff, right? On top of that, Osiris lives in the hacker community. Osiris fully aware that in going to the dark web with information that's been censored publicly by the governmental authorities, on some level, she is running afoul of the law. In her world, it's not a big transgression. People do it all the time. And certainly uh, sharing the song of some forgotten artist that she doesn't even care for is not a big deal. It's not like sharing something which is truly illegal and which would land you in jail. What Osira doesn't realize is that she's actually triggered into something far, far bigger than herself and far more ominous than she realizes. But again, the kick in the story is she's attracted to the idea that there's something sort of subversive about what has happened, and it's not just a cause. It involves something sort of that's tugging at her. She's identifying with the idea of rebellion. So Shiny, even in his absence, engenders a form of rebellion, which is very specific to an artist like Shiny. It's a particular form of rebellion. It's the idea that one person can push over a domino and change the world. Most people will tell you, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you think, you're not capable of that kind of power, don't even bother. And yet here, Osira has just brushed up against it just enough to engage her curiosity, which, as we all know, is probably the most important faculty in the world to move along a storyline. A person has to actually care about what happens next. You know, you've just got a couple more years on me. I'm, I'm not that old to begin with. You're not that old to begin with. But you're throwing me back to my youth, 2000, the kid who's like, oh, I got to change the world. Let's sign up. Let's ACLU, reading all the books about all everything you know is wrong, disinformation in this. I'm loving this because it's making me remember the idolized youth that I had where I thought, you know what? The future could be something completely different as long as we put in the effort for it and we can make a change. I like to think that um, even though I don't always uh, socially or politically or even emotionally agree with young people for what they're after, because those are generational concerns oftentimes, and I'm in a different generation with different generational concerns, I like to start from the assumption that most people's hearts are good. So even when I look across a particular divide, I try not to look at that person as somebody with a differing opinion as myself. I try to think that that person, even if I disagree with them, they're coming from a place of faith, which is they want to change the world for the better. And in this case, Osira is a good-hearted person. So as cool as she thinks she is, as cool as her group Hopus Day is, as sort of subversive as they are sort of living in the hacker community, probably breaking into like third tier governmental websites to get information on things they don't even care about, but just so they could say that they did it. Her decision-making can actually affect one person's life and why she cares is probably surprising to her. And so the song Hooligan is she's identifying as the hooligan. Now she's the subversive target in the thing and she actually kind of likes it. I think that's a good note for us to go right into that song. We're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, it'll be the world premiere of the song Hooligan, and Butch Vig is going to join the podcast. This is 33. Stay tuned. Now available for pre-order at MadamZuzus.com. The autographed 4LP box set of Autumn, the new album by the Smashing Pumpkin. This 4LP colored vinyl pressing is limited to 1,333 units and will be machine numbered and autographed by the Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corrigan, 
Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, and Jeff Schroeder. The limited edition box set includes the three-act, 33-song rock opera that is Autumn, and 10 exclusive unreleased songs over the course of five seven-inch singles that will not be available for streaming or found anywhere else. Go to MadamZuzus.com to pre-order today. Free shipping in the USA, three-unit limit per order. Pre-order will ship after April 21st, 2023. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Friends, welcome back. William Patrick Corgan here for the 33 Podcast. So exciting. Another world premiere. 33 of them in all. (laughs) Hence the uh, clever name for the podcast. Uh, This is a cool song. Uh, It's one of those songs in the modern era of the Smashing Pumpkins that's sort of not quite heavy and not quite electronic, but it sort of broaches that kind of heaviness that only we can create. At least I like to think that way. Uh, This is Hooligan.
Welcome back, music fans. You just heard the world premiere of the song Hooligan off of the upcoming album Autumn by the Smashing Pumpkins. And at this time, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Butch Vig to 33. Butch, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, gents. It's good to be here. You know, Butch, uh, we go way back. (laughs) 1990, (laughs) I believe it. Way, way back. Yeah, 1990 is when we first met. And uh, I was reminiscing, of course, knowing we're going to talk today. And I, you know, I can't help it. It's like, because I told Jimmy Chamberlain the other day, I was going to talk to you, and he goes, the butchster. So <laughs> if anyone remembers that uh, that Sarant Live skit where there was always, everyone was like the Kyle Stir, the Joe Stir. So we used to call the each stir, other back. And, yeah. yeah, it was Stir. So it was, it was yeah. Butchster, Bill Stir, and and, uh, and Jim Stir. So Jim as soon as stir, I think yeah. of you, it's like, Jimmy goes, butchster. <laughs> so it takes me right back. Do you remember, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Do you remember that first day that we met? Yeah, I do. You guys came up from Chicago. It was for the single that we did. I think it was uh, Tristessa and Ladali Vida, correct? So your, your memory is totally intact. 
And I just remember when you showed up at the door, you remember Smart, it was very funky. You just pull up on Baldwin Street and load in that side door there. And I just thought, as a band, you guys looked super cool, but totally a bunch of freaks. <laughs> well, you were right about that. Um, <laughs> truth be told, the reason that uh, we end up recording with Butch was um, a record that he'd made with a band called Das Damen. We were trying to find a producer for the Sub Pop single, which eventually came out, I think, in 1990. And somebody said, listen to this record that this guy, uh, Butch, did up in Madison, Wisconsin by Das Dahman. And I listened and I thought, oh, the guitars are kind of washy, but man, the kick drum sounds great. So that's why he ended up working with Butch. <laughs> we had no idea who Butch was other than he had a good kick drum sound. And so uh, thus began a really important relationship, I think, for both of us. Uh, I don't want to speak for you, but um, certainly our, our time together uh, was fun and, and fruitful and uh, such great memories. Uh, it's hard to recount them in the shape of a podcast. But please go ahead if you want to jump in on that. Well, the, the thing that I love about working with you and with the Pumpkins is that for the first time, I really felt someone who shared a vision together. And when we made Gish, to me, that was like making a Steely Dan record. You have to remember, I did all these punk rock records in like one or two or three days, like track 10 songs in a day, do all overdubs on day two, and then mix them all in day three. And I did probably 500 records like that. And I think maybe we spent about 30 or 35 days on Gish, you know, re recording and mixing. I can't remember exactly, but something 43, like that. 43. 43, and that, including mixing, I think, right? Yeah, that's right. 43 days to top to bottom. So that was like making a Steely Dan record. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciated, uh, you know, Bill, your vision, you always raised the bar really high. And we, like I said, we sort of shared that same vision. Like I pushed you, but you pushed me right back. And it was really good for both of us. Well, Listen, no single person in my life asked more of me than you did, but but I didn't know I had more to give. So that's the beauty of it. You saw more in me than I saw in myself. And I was shocked because at some point, you know, as Howard, uh, you know, helps uh, us put this podcast together knows, uh, Howard Willing, you know, there's a point where you can turn your producer into dad. Well, dad wants me to do it again. Dad doesn't think the drum takes good enough. And what was shocking to me was like, for a while you were dad, like, oh, dad wants us to do it again. And then at some point I got worse <laughs> than you and you were trying to talk me out of doing stuff. And I was like, no, I got to do this like 800 more times. And you're like, I think it's good. And I was like, no, no, you're wrong. I have very distinctive memories of doing a vocal and coming back and listening to it with you. And you go, oh, I think that's pretty good. And I was like, no, nope, got to do it again. And I go back and sing the whole <laughs> thing all over again. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because we both came out of, uh, a recording system in the 80s that was struggling with perfectionism, but this was pre-Pro Tools. We were right on the cusp of Pro Tools. So we didn't have the technology to fix our stuff. We just had to kind of figure it out on the fly. Of course, I remember your stories, which were legendary in your own early recording career. You went on to great success, of course, with Garbage, but your stories about having to be 800 takes and stuff like that and how that kind of did your head in. And I think both of us struggled with like, let's call it the nascent idea of what is perfect because in rock and roll, there really is no perfect, right? There's some great punk rock records that were made in three days. And there are records like the Beatles made, which took some time and we're still listening. I'm curious what you think, because um, you were sort of right on that cusp, particularly, you know, you'd recorded Nirvana before us. And then of course, after us famously doing Nevermind. What's your perspective now looking back on that idea of perfectionism in music? Because obviously where we thought we were being pretty picky circa 1993, that's nothing compared to, to today. Yeah, you know, the digital revolution has made it possible for everyone to make great sounding records. I mean, you can record in your basement. Uh, some kid can record a song in his basement 
fully formed, release it the next day, put it on the internet, and a million people can hear it. And that did not happen 20 or 25 years ago. What I've realized is part of what makes all those great records that we did or classic records that we listen to, whether it's the Beatles or the Stones or punk rock, is that the human performance is really what you connect with emotionally. And things can get so perfect now, be you know quantized and auto-tuned and just made so they fit into this perfect formula. And it just has made a lot of current music a, a sea of mediocrity. I really, when I went back a couple years ago and did uh, uh, Wasting Light with the Foo Fighters, we did that on tape. And it was the first time I'd gone back to analog tape since probably 94, 95. And uh, I just embraced it right away because I realized when you record on tape, you really have to concentrate on the performance. You can't fix it. You can't chop it up and you can't quantize it and put it through some algorithm in a computer and make it perfect. Uh, and I sort of took that to heart with the, the last couple of garbage records that we've done. I've sort of gone a little bit more old school and we've we've loosened up the performance criteria and let it, you know, go for more first or second or third takes and just sort of leave it. You know, if someone hits a really bad chord, of course, you got to fix it. But and I think that that helps. Also, I know Shirley appreciates doing that, too. She doesn't like doing 30 or 40 takes of vocals. She likes to do about six or seven takes and that's it. So we got to get it quick and then you leave it where it is. And, and it is what it is because uh, I, I, there is really no such thing as perfection. If you do get to perfection, it's not going to sound good. But you just brought up, you know, garbage. And I have to be honest with you. I grew up in the era where I'm listening to albums that I know the name Butch Vig. I'm, I'm following Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, Sonic Youth, you know, L7, House of Pain, Shamrocks and Shenanigans, all these things. I see remixes. I see this. I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. I had no idea what you looked like. And then I looked up Butch Vig and I go, wait a second, that's the guy from Garbage. <laughs> so the truth of the matter is, is you've had this ability to create all these different things that nobody might have realized this is the man that is adjusted to it. Then you're in the front. You're one of the main people helping create it. You just mentioned Garbage and I have to ask you, is there a preference for you to be that person at the forefront helping or the guy behind the scenes building that somebody might not realize is really there guiding the light? You know, I think I'm really lucky in that I've been able to wear both of those hats and flip back and forth between them now for my career. You know, I started out playing in bands in high school, and then I met Duke, and we played in a sort of a, a pop new wave band called Spooner in college, and then I played in this band called Firetown. And um, I've had a lot of side bands, so I, I like writing songs. I like being in bands. It's like a little clique, you know, your little gang you're hanging with. And that's one side of my brain. The other side of my brain is producing. And that I have to realize when I'm working with someone, it's the artist's music. And it's my job to help the artist find their vision. And they're kind of two different things, but I really like it that I can switch between them, like I said, because it keeps uh, it keeps life interesting. Are you able to run those both at the same time? Or does like one thought process to run independently? It just seems like that would be such a challenge to try to do it at the same time. It is. I'm not a good multitasker. I know some producers can handle like six or seven projects in a row. I have a tendency to focus on one thing and then just really zero in, get microscopic if I need to, and, and just sort of psychologically embrace it so I know what I'm doing every day. Looking back, going back to here's the guy who had the good kick drum sound on the Das Damen record, and then working with you, of course, in the early part of our recording life, it strikes me so obviously now how talented you are. You know what I mean? You've gone on to such incredible success. We just knew you as this guy from up in Madison, Wisconsin. 
And I have such fond memories because I really think one of the wonderful things about working with you is you became part of our world, not just as a friend and a producer, but you almost became like an extra member of the band. You really took our music on at face value. Most people couldn't. They couldn't sort of get inside, particularly the chemistry between uh, Jimmy and I. That relationship that Jimmy had, which, you know, Jimmy and I are much better friends now than we were then. We were just sort of musical brothers, but we didn't really know each other as people very well. You were able to sort of unwind that relationship and put it back together in a way that was very productive. Can you give a little insight into that? Because for us, you were just this outsider who's trying to help us make a good album. Of course, now I see you in the perspective of a highly talented person who was able to bring those talents and lend them to us in a period of our lives where we really needed it. But what's your perspective on that? Because that balance of how you get inside personalities, and of course, you've done it with many successful bands, is probably the most delicate balance a producer has to make. Well, yeah, to me, producing is 50% psychology. You really, or I really need to understand the artists I'm working with, not just musically what they're doing, but how they tick, you know, what's going on in their in their brains. The first thing I noticed, even going back to that first Sub Pop single, was the sound of the pumpkins is the way you and Jimmy sort of push the front end of the bar and then pull back. Even if it's a straight 4-4 groove, it's got this push-pull thing, and you are so locked into how you play that together it's hard to even define to young drummers or young musicians but it's it's an x factor that you guys have always had i hear it even in the new stuff i've heard on um you know the the track today hooligan whatever whatever you guys are doing it's a chemistry thing that uh is unique to how you play together obviously you know through gish you know we raised the bar even higher we went down to atlanta recorded siamese dream and that was like a total a totally epic undertaking. It almost it. killed us. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It almost killed us. Uh, and, and like you said earlier, you know, because there was no pro tools, we really had to hone in on the performances. And, and I, I was pretty good friends with Jimmy back then. He, he, in general, he was pretty easy going, but as, as you and a lot of people know, he had issues with drug abuse and uh, that really came to a head in Atlanta and brought a lot of extra stress into the sessions. And so I, I felt like I was really navigating, you know, what was going on in your head. You know, you were, you were quite of a mess at the time. And I was just trying to like focus on, okay, we have to, we have to get these great performances, but we've got to keep the band together. And uh, it was not easy. I mean, it was really, it was very traumatic. Yeah. I think um, to simplify it for the, those listening, you had two tracks. On one track, you had the bands under enormous pressure to make a major label debut that will compete with our compatriots in Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and by extension, other bands that were being successful at the time. But particularly the success of Nirvana and Pearl Jam was sort of glaring us right in the face. That was the bar, right? You went from if you're a band that can sell a quarter million records to now you have to be able to sell at least four or five million. If you can't, you're probably dead in the water. They're probably going to get rid of you. So that's one track. And the other track, you have a band that's never really sort of settled its internal dispute, which is about who's going to make the music in the recording studio. A quick review is that when we made Gish, Butch, more so than me, pushed the idea that I was probably going to have to play most of the instrumentation outside of the drums on the album because Butch had heard the demos that the band had made. And then when we go in the studio and the band tries to record, Butch is looking at me like, why doesn't this sound the same? And I was like, well, I'm the guy who did all the demos, right? So we had a kind of a, a negotiation and James and Darcy were sort of on board with the idea of, okay, well, in this circumstance, this is the way it's going to be. And then we had a meeting at the end of Gish, actually at Smart Studios. I don't think Butch was in the room. You might've been, but 
where we talked about the idea of like, okay, well, then the next album, which became ultimately Siamese Dream, everyone's going to have a fresh opportunity to contribute. So now here we are, essentially two years later, the bar has been raised even higher, not just in terms of recording, but also in terms of pressure. And unfortunately, the other band members weren't sort of emotionally or, or physically prepared for the challenge ahead. At least that was the summation at the time. And that started to fracture the band. So as the band's trying to make what became a classic album, the band's literally splintering apart internally. And everybody dealt with those issues in different ways. And in my way, it was to go down some sort of dark rabbit hole in my brain. And for other band members, it was forms of personal abuse. And James and Darcy, having been a couple, that kind of created a weird voting block at times where James felt like he had to kind of vote with you know his ex-girlfriend because that was be seen as disloyal because they were very close as people. You know, a lot of these things are publicly documented. I'm just trying, reminding Butch of the of the trauma so he can relive it one more time. Real quick, can you speak to that a little bit, Butch? Because obviously you were pretty much the only other person in the room that saw it. Well, yeah, it's the thing is, um, I think the stress of the bar being so high, I mean, everyone expected we were going to have this huge record. Uh, the first time I went to Chicago to hang with you to play songs. I could tell you weren't ready because you were sort of uh, trepidatious about playing, putting cassettes on in the car. We were driving around. I don't know if you remember this, Billy. And you'd start to play a song and you'd turn it off and go, I don't want to play you that ready. You know, <laughs> I do it's remember. not ready yet. And then, I do remember that. <laughs> and we were, uh, you know, we had sort of set a time to start the record. And, and after uh, driving around, we both agreed you're not ready. And I think I could, it was maybe another six months before we actually went to Atlanta to start Siamese Street. But you wrote a lot of new songs in that chunk of time. So I think even though you wanted me to come down and meet, you knew you didn't have the core of their record ready. So that extra writing time, you wrote some of the biggest songs on the record. And I think when we got to Atlanta, that pressure uh, was really hard on everybody. I mean, James is a great guitar player and Darcy's a very good bass player. But they don't have that same feel that I talked about that you and Jimmy have when you play together. And to me, that's part of the sound of the Pumpkins. And I think that's why, you know, I still felt like it was imperative that you play almost all of the, the instrumentation on the record, you know, along except for Jimmy's drums. I still think that was the, uh, a wise decision because that's the feel, that's the sound of the Pumpkins to me. It's unfortunate because if we were making that record today and we were once again, 25 years old, the other band members would have had a different opportunity because technology would have afforded a different opportunity. And that's really the shame of that is we were right at the edge of that era where you had to be able to play two tape in a particular way. And the vision on that record and the pressure on that record put us all in a very odd circumstance. Were you going to ask something, Kyle? Speaking of pressure, you know, Butch being a producer, do you ever feel when you're dealing with a newer band that there's pressure on you to make sure that they get the results that they should? Because, you know, this being the first major label, this was, some would say, sink or swim. So a lot of that, you could control that from behind the scenes. Did that weigh on you in any aspect? Yeah, after the success of Gish and Nevermind, I just started getting calls constantly. The phone is ringing off the hook at Smart Studios. Everybody wanted to sound like the Pumpkins or Nirvana. And uh, sometimes A&R people were sending me tapes of folk singers or blues rock guitarists, and they wanted to sound, quote unquote, alternative, you know, to, to capture the <laughs> essence of what was going on. I love but that the, I mean, that always happens. You know, that always happens when there's a new trend in music. A lot of people jump on board because they think they can capitalize on it. And of course, that you know, that doesn't always work out. 
But yeah, it, it was okay. The thing is, uh, when we made Siamese Dream, the bar was so high, it was stressful. And like, I, I mean, I felt like it almost killed me. I was brain dead when, we, you know, because we spent about five months tracking in Atlanta. And then we went to Rumbo Recorders out in the Valley in LA for, God, I think five or six weeks. And we brought along Alan Mulder, who's a, a brilliant mixer, uh, to come on board. And I think we only had Alan for two weeks, but Billy and I kidnapped him. <laughs> we wouldn't let him fly back to England because, uh, you know, it would take us three or sometimes four days to mix a track. That's yeah, just the way it was. You know, we, 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 at that point we were so, we had tunnel vision in terms of how we wanted the record to sound and we weren't going to stop until we got there. Yeah. The one thing I really appreciate in looking back and, and it's true. I mean, that record pretty much killed both of us in particular because <laughs> yeah. you and I spent most of the, the man hours in, in, the, in the submarine there. The thing I most look back upon it is, and I always credit you for this is, you made that record that I don't think that we would have ever made with anybody but you. And you got the, like, let's call it the most perfect version of this band that was ever going to be. And as somebody who stands on stage weekly and plays those songs, I really appreciate that you captured that because it's sort of like a beautiful snapshot of our youth and our sort of innocence as much as we had it at that point. Because after that, everything changed and it got a lot darker and a lot weirder. And the people that we were musically and emotionally, you know, that's where we tended to go anyway. In a way, Siamese Dream being shiny as it is, is probably the closest thing we'll ever get to being that band because the other version of the band is probably a lot more accurate to our natural personalities. Yeah, you know, I'm really proud of both Gish and Siamese Dream because I think that we did capture an essence of where you were at that point. And I think those records still sound really good today. And part of that's because it wasn't done in Pro Tools, you know, because you put the man hours in particularly doing a lot of the overdubs, but just the sound of the band uh, to me still sounds exhilarating. You know, I would get a call two or three times a year from Taylor Hawkins because he was a huge Pumpkins fan. He loved Jimmy's drumming. And out of the blue, I get a thing. Oh my God, Butch, I'm listening to Gish. How did you get the drums to sound that way? And I don't, and I always write back Jimmy Chamberlain, but I, I appreciate it that, that Taylor had so much passion for it, you know, uh, and I know so many people who constantly tell me Siamese Dream is one of their favorite rock records. And just sonically, it just still sounds really good. And, and uh, that makes me feel good because we fucking worked our asses off on it. Yeah, it's interesting because even it's crazy, right? Next year is the 30th anniversary of Siamese Dream. I'll hear songs occasionally and it's like somehow it sounds both of the time and timeless at the same time. And I don't know how we did that. And I don't know if we could do it again. But somehow we sort of captured like sort of a past and a future at the same time. And that's what I really love about that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, the the interesting thing, too, just thinking back about when we went down to start. I, I, as I remember, we went up to Toronto, right? We were thinking of working at Russia's studio. Didn't we take a trip to Toronto at once and then... We thought, mm, I don't think that's going to work. Well, Rush, it was a studio that Rush worked at very often. And if you remember, we went and saw the studio and it was sort of sterile and sort of 70s. And so we decided it wasn't a good environment. Part of the reason we went up there was for tax breaks purposes, because we could save some money on the record. But uh, if you remember, we also met the drummer that day from Triumph. 
So that was a big thrill. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I remember there was there was shag carpeting in the studios everywhere. So the, all the rooms are really dead and, like you said, very seventies, very vibeless. So that's one of the reasons we didn't go there. But you know, you get the, you get these tours from some guy, and he's like, you know, this is where Kiss recorded, and he names some record that neither one of us liked from Kiss, like as if we would be a good <laughs> like a good thing. And we're thinking like, no, no, we got to get out of here. Um, yeah, the Toronto. That's a yeah Toronto. Somehow we went from Toronto to Marietta, Georgia. And a nondescript, almost like a mall, office mall space, which Triclops was. I went there not too long ago trying to find it. And, you know, it's long gone, unfortunately. I think both guys who own the studio have passed away now, sadly. But, uh, yeah, it's crazy, right? You, it's like you're there. It's this super intense time in your life. And we were there five, six months. And then it's over. And you move on and you do all sorts of other crazy things. Both of us have done all sorts of other crazy things. But... There's something about doing something like that when you're young and you, you still have some dreams left. <laughs> no pun intended. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful time. I, I have such fond memories of the thing. Kyle, you, you have anything? I was going to say, Butch, do you have a couple of minutes? Because our classic song today is Disarm, and this is one that you had a hand in. So if you wanted to join us, I was just going to throw it out there. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite tracks on the record. Um, when I went down to hear some of the early demos, at least this is how I remember Billy. I went down to Chicago and you guys had this terrible rehearsal space, like under the L train in like a concrete bunker. <laughs> True. And they, and you and you had a bunch of packing blankets on the wall. It was so loud and shrill in there. It was just painful. And you were playing a bunch of the songs. At that point, we were getting close to going to Atlanta. You know, I was taking notes thinking, okay, everything is sounding good, paying attention to the rhythms and the fills and all the different parts and stuff, thinking what we're going to do. And then they played Disarm in the rehearsal space. And I was like, I really like the song because I was really drawn to your lyrics. But I was having a hard time getting my head around where we were going to go with the track. And if you remember, when we went to Atlanta and actually started recording, I kept putting that song off. We'd finish a track, you know, all the overdubs and stuff. And I'd do a rough mix and you go, what should we do next? I go, you go, should we do Disarm? I go, no, let's do Soma, right? Pick something else. And because I, I was having a hard time personally trying to figure out what to do with that song. And toward the end of the sessions, I mean, we were running out of time. We had to do Disarm. And so you guys set up in the main tracking room and attempted to track it live. I, I'm not sure if you remember this, but it was, it was a disaster. It just didn't sound, <laughs> it didn't sound good. And we kept saying, I was trying to make the drums quieter, you know, dialing down the guitar, your electric guitar, and uh, having Jimmy play simpler. After a couple hours of attempting takes, out of frustration, you came into the control room and said to me, the song should sound like this. And you started playing it on acoustic guitar. And my brain went, that's how it has to sound. And so we very quickly had you do a take on guitar, like one or two takes, I think you did, and it was done, just with the acoustic guitar. And you had this cheap sampler a keyboard i don't know if it was an insonic or a roland or whatever good memory insonic it was an insonic and you had some custom samples of feedback and stuff in there but quickly you mocked up some strings put some feedback and a few other things in the track and we were like that's the template we're going to build the whole song around the acoustic guitar in hindsight you and i should have sat down and mocked it all up on keyboards wrote the score out and hired the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra to come in and play. But that's not what <laughs> we did. <laughs> but that's not what we did. 
you called your friend Eric Grimschneider, who plays cello from Chicago, and I think there was a violin player, David, from Atlanta, correct? Or was he from Chicago, he too? He was the touring uh, a violinist for the band Kansas. That's right. He had replaced Kerry yes. Livgren, so he was their touring violinist. And uh, if you don't mind me picking up the story here, so... Yeah, go. We had them both come in the studio. We had nothing prepared. You know, they're both got trained, you know, classical level musicians, right? And they go, so where's the score? And we said, there isn't one. <laughs> so they said, what are we going to play? We can't just go out there and sort of just jam over the track. And so I wrote every line of the strings by voice. I would sing for them what I would want, and then they would write it down, and then we'd go out and play, and then I, they would come back in, and I'd say, can you just change this one note or do this thing? So then we end up mapping out the whole score that way. And then they went out and triple tracked their parts, and that's what you hear. So that was all made up on the fly. And when I think back that we did that is so crazy because it turned out so beautifully and so sort of magically, uh, it, it blows my mind that we were able to wing that out of the side of our head that day. Yeah, it, it, it took about 12 hours. I think I tortured them for about 12 hours of string overdubs recording them. And it was great because once we realized they needed to write it down, you were able to listen to the keyboards that you'd put on there and then you could sing it. And they were really good at writing it down. Initially, I thought it was going to sound like a, a quartet, like a string quartet, two violins and, and cellos. And we realized right away that wasn't going to be big enough. So we kept writing parts. You kept coming up, coming up with these counter melodies. And then when it comes to the second verse, I go into a rhythm. And uh, I think, you know, anybody who knows analog tape, typically back in the day, you you track all the main instruments on an A reel, and then you'd make a B reel, which would sync with the A reel, so you'd have 48 tracks, and you'd do a lot of the extra overdubs on there. Well, I had to make a C and a D reel. I don't remember that, but that's cool. There were so many violin and cello parts, and that, so we were we spent 12 hours recording them. The next day... It took me 12 hours to edit and submix it all back onto that. Wow. Onto the main reel. So it was like a 48 hour endeavor, but it sounds fantastic. And I think the great thing about the strings in the song and the, and Jimmy's percussion that he added, which is very minimal, but extremely powerful. It, it gives so much power to the vulnerability of your singing. It's one of my favorite songs because of your vocal. It's so personal and emotional. And uh, one of the things I always liked about the Pumpkins is you can have this roar, but this fragility. And that, that song is just so human to me. It's uh, maybe my favorite track on Siamese Dream. Well, that's about as good as an introduction as we can have. So here's Disarm by the Smashing Pumpkins. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart 
in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to Disarm from Siamese Dream, album that came back came out all the way back in 1993. And Billy, we were with Butch Vig just a few moments ago talking about all the music. I think what we really should do is do a deep dive into the lyrics because even Butch said, like, the lyrics from this song have such an influence on just the music. And where was your mindset when you were writing the lyrics to this song? Well, as I've said in the past a few times, um, I went through a really long suicidal period. And um, I don't mean to make it sound sort of like a good thing. It was a very bad thing. I came very close to killing myself a few times. And I reached a point where I was so sick of thinking about killing myself that I I literally woke up one day and I said, okay, either today's the day or I can't think about this anymore, which sounds weird, but that's where my brain was. I was like, I'm either going to kill myself today or I have to accept that I'm not going to kill myself and get on with my life. And literally that day I made the decision to go back to working on music. And within a 48-hour period, I wrote the song Today and Disarm, which are two songs I still play all these years later. Those songs changed my life, not only as a musician and as a successful musician, but they changed my life in that I finally opened the door to what was really going on inside of me. I was so absolutely terrified that if I shared my real self with the world, that I would be just destroyed, that the world would just destroy me. I wasn't wrong about that (laughs) summation. What I was wrong about was my ability to withstand the pressure and, and the judgment, which invariably comes with success. Uh, as a public artist. I really do have to credit Courtney Love in this particular regard. We were very close in this particular period of time uh, in these years. You know, I met Courtney around the time of Gish and stuff like that. And I remember Courtney saying to me, I don't understand why the person that I talk to on the phone doesn't write the lyrics. And I said, well, can you explain that to me? And she said, well, I look at your, your Gish lyrics and it's a bunch of hazy hippie crap which, you know, is sort of accurate. <laughs> I like to think it's a little more positive than that. But, she, you know, she was sort of right. I was hiding behind a, a sort of a, you know, hippie tropes. She was like, why doesn't the person that I talked to on the phone write the lyrics? And I felt sort of challenged by that. So when I finally opened the door to my inner self, I was also influenced by a book called The Artist's Way, which anybody knows that book really in many ways saved my life and saved my life as an artist. The book really encouraged you to accept that whatever your true voice is, that you the only way you're going to succeed and survive and thrive as an artist is to accept your true voice. And that, that was terrifying to me because as an abused child, I was told that my authentic voice as a person, just as a person, was uh, not welcome, that that would lead to violence, that that would lead to harm. And as I said, that turned out to be the case as well. I mean, my personality in the world has not always gotten me where I want to go. So in this regard, opening myself up on a song like Disarm, where I'm talking really for the first time in my life about the abuse that I've suffered quickly, because it's not something I want to belabor. I've had this experience many times through the years where people kind of want me to quantify or qualify the abuse I suffered. And I want to say to anybody listening, if you've suffered abuse, psychological, physical, sexual abuse from anybody in your family, you've been abused. I don't care if it's a little or a lot, you've been abused. So you will never get from me this idea of like, uh, I call it the abuse Olympics. Like, you know, well, my dad ripped off my arm, hit me over the head with it. So I win the abuse Olympics. I think if you've survived, you've survived. And if you're going through it now, my heart goes with you. And I hope you come out of it because if you've been abused and you know you've been abused, it messes you up. It messed me up, but good. And so when I finally opened the door as a songwriter to address the abuse that I'd been through, 
and actually embraced it, which sounds weird to say, but I embraced it and said, okay, I'm gonna actually going to talk about this. It wasn't a conscious thought. It was like opening a door that had been shut for many, many years and opening it up and letting whoever was inside there come out and say whatever he had to say. And that's what came out. And if you look at the lyrics in the context that I've just explained it at, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, Disarm me with a smile, cut you like you want me to, cut that little child inside of me and such a part of you. In essence, as the abused person by, in my case, a parent, uh, you become overly identified with the parent. It creates a state of hypervigilance. A lot of your memories of childhood are, are mixed in with horrific memories of abuse. Some of the greatest days of my childhood literally ended with me being beat into a bloody pulp. So those are really weird things to navigate. And something about the process of success, and the band was successful off of Gish, the, the attack that invariably came, the bullying that invariably came with success as a successful musician in circa 1991 or 1992, it re-triggered, to use the modern term, it re-triggered all the abuse uh, PTSD in me. So even though I wasn't being physically abused, I was re-suffering the same abuse trauma. And my response was the same as an eight-year-old boy or something. I just wanted to hide or go in my head. But as an artist, I couldn't go in my head because if I just kept going in my head, I was going to kill myself. And yet, on the other hand, if I opened myself up to this, let's call it a more raw form of criticism and vulnerability, I was going to die the other way. So in my mind, I was going to die no matter what way I went. So in this case, I chose to die uh, on my feet <laughs> and write about what I've been through. The catharticism of putting how your experiences have created the human being you were, putting that out there publicly and people reacting to it. I just have to ask some of the fallback of it. Did you kind of put up more of a wall and pushing more into that rock star with, you know, melancholy zero and all what we've spoken before before? Absolutely. Think about this. And I'm, I'm going to say this in a way that uh, I know somebody invariably will take as arrogance, but I don't mean it. This is just in my mind, this is the fact of my life. I made a generational classic album called Siamese Dream with the band we were just talking to, Butch Vig. We worked our tails off to make an album which has stood the test of time, 29 years and counting. And that album will probably go on long after Butch and I have left the planet. And Jimmy Chamberlain and Darcy and, and James, we all contributed. You make this incredible album. It's massively successful. It was a quadruple platinum success. I think we had three songs make MTV. You're on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, Spin magazine. You have reached the absolute pinnacle of your business. You were at the top. Now you're not, maybe not at the top, 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 but you're up there. You're up at the very top of the mountain. And it was a miserable, miserable experience. I was bullied. I was humiliated. Let me tell you a quick story. Uh, I don't think I've ever told this story. And this is where it gets really, really weird. This is a, a scene inside the gold mine to, uh, to uh, paraphrase Jim Morrison. We were granted the honor uh, and I say that uh, in, in, in loose quotations, the honor of being named Artist of the Year for Spin Magazine, I believe 1993 or 1994. I think it was 94, but I could be wrong. They called me up and said, or the management called me up and said, they don't want to shoot the band. So the, the, the Smashing Pumpkins are the Artist of the Year, but they want to shoot only you. Okay. Now, I'm an ego person, as a lot of artists are. So on one hand, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, they want to shoot me. They want to turn me into the guy. Like, Kurt was the guy, Eddie's the guy, now it's my turn, right? Okay. Band is pissed. The band is pissed. The band goes, no, you can't do it. You can't agree to that. We're a band. We're band of the year. It has to be the band. 
Okay, so I go back to Spin Magazine or the management does and say, banned or nothing. And they say, well, then you're not banned of the year. We're going to take the honor, again in quotations, away from the band. So management calls me back up and says, you're insane to not do this because this is worth a million albums. Do you understand? You're, on the, you're going to be named the band of the year by the biggest alternative magazine in the world. You have to take it even if you don't like it. The band grumbling sort of agrees. I'm kind of caught between my own ego and the fact that I realize it's probably a bad move. Okay, but I decide to do it because I'm Machiavelli and I want to win. And that was the ultimate decider. I go to do the photo shoot. It seemed to be it was like at a rehearsal space or something. So it's just me and the photographer. Okay, now this is a photographer who's well-known, has shot other stuff. So I'm thinking I'm walking into a, a photo shoot where, you know, the guy's going to make me look good. Okay, the, the process of deciding how to do this thing is over. Now let's just get down to taking some good photos. Halfway through the photo shoot, I feel like I'm just, you know, I'm 25, 26 years old. You've only got so many poses, you know what I mean? There's like the angry pose, the happy pose. But halfway through the photo shoot, the guy goes, hey, I brought some props. Do you mind using them? Kind of the way he asked me was kind of weird. It was almost kind of creepy. And I go, what do you, prop, what do you mean props? Like, what kind of props are we talking about? He pulls out, and I kid you not, he pulls out a gorilla suit. And he wants me to wear the gorilla suit. They had made a determination that they were going to humiliate me on the cover. They wanted me to wear a gorilla suit, and then they were going to hold me up as a subject for mockery. I said no. Now we get into like a weird, almost like groomer-level situation where he's trying to talk. Like, I feel like I'm being asked to have sex, honestly. Like, it's like he gets kind of creepy. Like, don't you want to do it? It's a good idea. It'll be a great photo. We won't use it on the cover. And I'm like, I'm smelling a rat saying no, 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 no. So if you look, and hardcore Smashing Pumpkins fans will have seen the photo, there's one photo floating out. I don't know how it got out or or it was part. I don't remember it being part of the magazine time. Maybe it was. There's a photo of me wearing like the gorilla hands. That was the compromise. I was like, well, I'll wear the gorilla hands. Ha ha, we'll take like a funny shot. But the guy was like super pissed that I wouldn't put on the fucking gorilla head. I understand? I'm an abused child. Okay, I don't say that proudly. I'm an abused child. I come from years of abuse. I got this guy, I'm thinking I'm coming into something that I should be proud of. And this guy's trying to get me to wear a fucking gorilla suit. Because this magazine, and I later found out other information, which I can't share, they had made a determination, and it involved some inner politics with the magazine, where they were going to humiliate me. So yes, we were going to be named Artist of the Year, but the retaliation, because other forces in the magazine didn't want the Pumpkins named as Artist of the Year, is they were going to humiliate me on the cover. Okay, this should be one of the best moments of my life, and it turns into a fucking nightmare. So that's the kind of stuff that pushed me to become Zero and Glass and Shiny. Because I just could not f***ing deal. Sorry to curse on my podcast. I just could not deal. I just could not deal. And at some point, I felt like I was being asked to choose between my music and my life. And I kept choosing my music at the detriment of my life. And ultimately, the only balance I could achieve in that was to become somebody I wasn't. So I'm sorry if I'm not me, but that's who the me I became. I think you just brought up something very important there as well, which is sometimes people that make decisions don't think about how those decisions affect the people around them. You are literally a rock star, you're a man creating art, and yet somebody, just because they decided this is what I want, this is what I'm going to do, affected you and what you created moving forward. So again, if anybody's listening to this, treat people with respect because you don't know the life they've had, you don't know where they've been, and you don't know how you could negatively affect them moving forward. I appreciate you saying that, Kyle, but let me just, let me say something slightly different. 
I don't mind it in a weird kind of way because the response engendered my creativity, which engendered a lot of great music that probably wouldn't have come out. Yes, after Siamese Dream, the Pumpkins took a weird turn to the left. We got darker, we got weirder. Uh, we switched producers. You know, here we work with a great, wonderful person in Butch. We went a different direction because I was chasing something different now. And that produced its own body of work. And if you look at the two albums side by side, Siamese and Melancholy, they're very different records, recorded really only a couple years apart. That shows you the level of trauma that I'd gone through, and I don't say that lightly. It knocked me upside the head pretty hard. My response was to write the music that I did write, Bullet with Butterfly Wings. I'm just a rat in the cage. Zero. I'm just a nobody. I'm not even here. I mean, literally, I wrote a song called Zero that I performed on one of the biggest television shows in the world, telling the world, the person you're looking at isn't even in the room. Yes, there's a body, and yes, there's a guy moving his mouth, but the real human being, he's somewhere about 14 streets away. And I think that's a good place to end, because the journey, which is what we're here to talk about, both past, present, and future, is very interesting to me. It's easy for me to talk about these things now, because they're not painful to me now like they were then. And I think it's very interesting that you know, you could have a band that was put into an idealized situation with Butch, who was a great musician and producer, obviously super talented. I mean, the depth of talent on a Butch fig is hard to recount, but I've been in the room with that talent and benefited from that talent and benefited from his grace. He's just a really gentle person. He's really a good man in there, right? We benefited from that, and he got something out of us that only really Butch could have gotten out of us. We trusted Butch. Uh, he kept the band together. The band splintered apart. He was the one who was going between the apartments and keeping the band together through that album. This band wouldn't have survived that album if it wasn't for Butch Vig. And yet, out of that, we end up leaving our producer, going a completely different direction and charting a different musical course, which, strangely enough, made us an even bigger band. And yet, every night on stage, we play songs from both eras. And in many ways, that's what most people think of when they think of the Smashing Pumpkins. The story is obviously a lot more complicated and a lot deeper than that. But for the average punter, that's the band that they understand. And what's amazing is those two sort of personalities, if that's all anybody remembers, they stand side by side sort of as like strange twins. Use the Siamese uh, dream analogy and the, and the girls on the cover. They stand as sort of strange twins of, of what that time did to us. And on that note, I want to give a, a special shout out and a big thank you to Butch Vig for joining us on this podcast on WPC 33. But, you know, it's so interesting that not only was he working so hard with you back in the 90s, he still has a lot of stuff going on right now. Isn't that right, Kyle? That is absolutely correct. His band Five Billion and Diamonds, the double vinyl for the album Divine Accidents featuring Jimmy Chamberlain, Smashing Pumpkins, on the track A Thin Line is available now. Also, Garbage is going to be performing at the Audacity's ninth annual We Can Survive at the Hollywood Bowl on October 22nd. And Record Store Day, Black Friday, the new single, by BV in collab with SSVU. That's the Silver Sun Vig Ups. David Lynch has a painting made of flies. Eyes will be out November 26. Azra's here at 33. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Make sure you're using the hashtag WPC33 spelled out. And you can follow Joe Galley on Instagram at Joe Galley and Twitter at Joe Galley News. I'm online as Kyle Davis, ATL. And most importantly, Billy Corgan is on Twitter at Billy and Instagram WPC Codex. Also, stop by SmashingPumpkins.com for merch and Spirits on Fire tour dates like Washington, D.C. at the Capital One Arena, followed by NYC's Madison Square Garden on 1019, Philly, Pittsburgh. The list keeps on going on. And make sure you like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast wherever you are listening via iTunes, Spotify, iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcast. 
This results in the algorithm so more people get to hear us and we get to do more of this and bring it to you. And if you're still not satiated, make sure you go over to WPC33.com. Continue the conversation there where you'll find playlists, lyrics, and more on the influences that make the Smashing Pumpkins music you love. Thank you guys so much. Billy, thank you for opening up. I'm sure the fans are loving to hear all this and also just having this most honesty with us. Can't ask for anything more for you. Until next time, this has been 33. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.